Chapter Sixteen of Bonnie Prince Charlie: A Tale of Fontenoy and Culloden. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rachel. Bonnie Prince Charlie: A Tale of Fontenoy and Culloden by G. A. Henty. Chapter Sixteen: The March to Derby. Two days later, when the jailer brought in breakfast to their cell, he dropped on the table by the side of the loaf a tiny ball of paper, and then without a word went out and locked the back door. Malcolm put his finger to his lips, as Ronald was about to utter an exclamation of joy. "'One's appetite is not as good here as it is when we were tramping the hills, Ronald, but one looks forward to one's meals. They form a break in the time.' So saying, he took up one of the lumps of bread and began to eat, securing at the same time the pellet of paper. "'We can't be too careful,' he said in a whisper. "'It is quite possible that they may be able to overhear us.' "'I don't see how,' Ronald replied in the same tone. "'I see no crack or crevice through which sound could pass.' "'You may not see one,' Malcolm said, "'but it may exist for all that.' One of the boards of the ceiling may be as thin as paper, and anyone listening through could hear every word we say when we speak in our natural voices. The magistrates evidently believe that they have made a valuable capture, and would give anything to prove that their suspicions are correct. Now, I will go and stand at that grated opening and look at this paper. If they are watching us, they will see nothing then. The little piece of paper, when unfolded, contained but a few words keep up your courage you have friends without working for you destroy this malcolm at once again rolled up the pellet put it into his mouth and swallowed it then whispered to ronald what he had just read i thought he whispered that we should soon get a message of some sort the news of our arrest will have set the hearts of a score of people quaking and they would do anything now to get us out from this prison they have already you see succeeded in bribing our warder at his evening visit the warder passed into Ronald's hand a small parcel, and then, as before, went on without speaking. "'I am confirmed in the belief that we can be overheard,' Malcolm said. "'Had the man not been afraid of listeners, he would have spoken to us. Now, let us see what he has brought us this time.' The parcel contained a small file, a saw made of watch-spring, and a tiny file of oil. "'So far, so good.' Malcolm said quietly, "'Our way through these bars is clear enough now, but that is only the beginning of our difficulties. This window looks into the prison yard, and there is a drop of some forty feet to begin with. However, I have no doubt our friends will send us the means of overcoming these difficulties in due course. All we have to concern ourselves about now is the sawing through of these bars.' As soon as it was dark they began the work, relieving each other in turns, the oil prevented much sound being made, but to deaden it still further they wrapped a handkerchief over the file. The bars had been but a short time in position, and the iron was new and strong. It was consequently some hours before they completed their work. When they had done, the grating was left in the position it before occupied, the cuts being concealed from any but close observation by kneading up small pieces of bread and pressing them into them and then rubbing the edges with iron filings. "'That will do for to-night,' Malcolm said. "'No one is likely to pay us a visit, 
but if they did they would not notice the bars unless they went up and shook them tomorrow morning we can put a finishing touch to the work as soon as it was daylight they were upon their feet it does very well as it is malcolm said examining the grating it is good enough to pass and we need not trouble further about it now collect every grain of those iron filings no don't do that on any account he broke in as ronald was preparing to blow some of it from the lower stonework through the opening were you to do that it would be quite possible that one of the prisoners walking in the yard might see it and would as likely as not report the circumstance to one of the warders in order to curry favour and perhaps obtain a remission of his sentence scrape it inside and pour every atom down the crevices in the floor that done we are safe unless any one touches the grating they watched their warder attentively when he came into the cell but this time he had no message for them we must not be impatient malcolm said our friends have a good many arrangements to make for they will have to provide our getting away when we are once out besides they will probably have to bribe other warders and that kind of thing can't be done in a hurry it was not for another two days that the warder made any fresh sign then as on the first occasion he placed a pellet of paper on the table with their bed this is a good deal larger than the last ronald whispered it was not until some little time after they had finished their meal that ronald moved to the grating and unrolled the little ball of paper it contained only the words you will receive a rope this evening with this lower yourselves from your window into the courtyard start when you hear the church bells strike midnight cross the court and stand against the wall near the right corner of the opposite side the third window on the second floor will be opened and a rope lowered to you attach yourselves to this and you will be pulled up from above after reading the note ronald passed it on to malcolm who as before swallowed it but had this time to tear it into several pieces before doing so the warder was later bringing their supper than usual that evening and it was dark when he came in as he entered the room he let the lamp fall which he carried confound the thing he said roughly here take hold of this bread and let me feel for the lamp i can't be bothered with going down to get another light you can eat your supper in the dark just as well i have no doubt as he handed ronald the bread he also pushed into his hand the end of the rope and while he pretended to search for the lamp he turned round and round rapidly and so unwound the rope which was twisted many times round his body as soon as this was done he picked up the lamp and with a rough good-night left them it is just as i suspected malcolm said in ronald's ear there is a people somewhere otherwise there could be no occasion for him to have dropped the lamp it is well that we have always been on our guard they ate their bread in silence and then after a short talk on the stupidity of the english in taking two drovers for messengers of prince charles they lay down on their rough pallets to pass with what patience they could the long hours before midnight for it was late in october and it was little after five o'clock when the warder visited them they felt but slight anxiety to the success of the enterprise for they had no doubt that every detail had been carefully arranged by their friends without although certainly it seemed a strange method of escape that after lowering themselves from a third-floor window they should afterwards be hauled up into a second at last after what seemed almost an endless watch they heard the church clock strike twelve and simultaneously rose to their feet not a word was spoken for although it was improbable in the extreme that any watcher would be listening at that hour of the night it was well to take every precaution 
the grating was lifted out and laid down on one of the couches so that all noise should be avoided the rope was then strongly fastened to the stump of one of the iron bars now malcolm i will give you a leg up i am younger and more active than you are so you had better go first without debating the question malcolm put his foot on ronald's hand and in a moment was seated in the opening of the window grasping the rope he let himself quietly out and lowered himself to the ground reaching it so noiselessly that ronald who was listening did not hear a sound after waiting a minute however he sprang up on to the sill and feeling that the rope was slack was soon by malcolm's side below they both removed their shoes and hung them round their necks and walking noiselessly across the court they took up their post under the window indicated in the note in less than a minute the end of a rope was dropped upon their heads you go first this time ronald malcolm said and fastened it beneath ronald's arms then he gave a pull at the rope to show that they were ready the rope tightened and ronald found himself swinging in the air he kept himself from scraping against the walls by his hands and feet and was especially careful as he passed the window on the first floor in a minute he was pulled into the room on the second floor by the men who had hoisted him up a low hush warned him that there was still a necessity for silence the rope was lowered again and ronald lent his aid to hoist malcolm up to the window as soon as he was in it was as slowly and carefully closed you are mighty heavy both of you a voice whispered i should not have thought it would be such hard work to lift up a man this height now follow us and be sure you make no noise two flights of stairs were descended and they then stood before a small but heavy door some bolts were drawn and a key turned in the lock this being done so noiselessly that ronald was sure they must have been carefully oiled the two men passed through with them locking the door behind them thank god we are out malcolm said fervently i have been in a watch-house more than once in my young days but i can't say i like it better as i grow older they walked for some minutes and then their guides opened a door and they entered a small house stir up those peats jack one of the men said and blow them a bit while i feel for a candle in a minute or two a light was obtained that's very neatly done i think gentlemen laughed the man addressed as jack and who they now saw was the warder who had attended upon them we had rare trouble in hitting upon that plan the cell you were in opened upon a corridor the doors to which were always locked by the chief constable himself and even if we could have got at his key and opened one of them we should have been no nearer escape for two of the warders sleep in the lodge and there would be no getting out without waking them and they could not be got at they are both of them married men with families and that sort of man does not care about running risks unless he happens to be tired of his wife and wanting a change nat here and i have no encumbrances and weren't sorry of a chance to shift anyhow there was no way as far as we could see of passing you out through that part of the prison and at last the idea struck us of getting you out the way we did that wing of the jail is only used for debtors and they are nothing like so strict on that side as they are on the other some of the warders sleep there so there is no difficulty in getting hold of the key for an hour and having a duplicate made till yesterday all the cells were full and we had to wait till a man whose time was just up moved out after that it was clear sailing well we are immensely obliged to you ronald said oh you needn't be obliged to us the warder replied we are well paid for the job and have promise of good berths if prince charles gets the best of it anyhow we shall both make for london where we have acquaintances 
Now we are going to dress up. There's no time to be lost talking. There is a light cart waiting for us, and horses for you half a mile outside the town. He opened a cupboard and took out two long smock frocks, which he and his companion put on. Now, gentlemen, will you put on these two suits of soldiers' clothes? I think they will about fit you. Ronald and Malcolm were soon attired as dragoons. There's a regiment of them here, the man said, so there was no difficulty in buying a cast-off suit and getting these made from it. As to the helmets, I guess there will be a stir about them in the morning. We got hold of a soldier today and told him he wanted a couple of helmets for a lark, and he said for a bottle of brandy he would drop them out of a barrack window at ten o'clock tonight, and he kept his word. Two of them will be surprised in the morning when they find that their helmets have disappeared. As to the swords and belts, I don't know that they are quite right. They were bought at an old shop, and I believe they are yeomanry swords, but I expect they are neat enough. I was to give you this letter to take with you. It is, as you see, directed to General Wade at Newcastle, and purports to come from the general of your regiment there, so that if by any chance you are questioned on the way, that will serve as a reason for your journeying north. Here is a purse of twenty guineas. I think that's about all. But are we not to see those who have done us such service, Ronald asked, in order that we may thank them in person? I don't know who it is any more than the man in the moon, the warder replied. It was a woman dressed as a serving wench, though I doubt it was only a disguise who came to me. She met me in the street and asked me if I should like to earn fifty pounds. I said I had no objection, and then after a good deal of beating about the bush it came out that what was wanted was that I should aid in your escape. I didn't see my way to working it alone, and I told her so. She said she was authorized to offer the same sum to another, so I said I would talk it over with Nat. He agreed to stand in, and between us we thought about the arrangements, but I never got to know any more about her. It was nothing to me whom the money came from, as long as it was all right. We have had half down, and are to have the other half when we get to the cart with you. And now, if you are ready, we will be starting. The further we get away from here before the morning, the better. They made their way quietly along the streets. The town was in total darkness, and they did not meet a single person abroad, and in a quarter of an hour they were in the open country. Another ten minutes, and they came upon the cart and horses. Three men were standing beside them, and the impatient stamp of a horse's hoof showed that the horses were tied up closely. A lantern was held up as the party came up. "'All safe?' "'All safe,' Ronald replied. "'Thanks, many thanks to you for our freedom.' The man holding the lantern was masked, so they could not see his face. He first turned to the two warders and placed a bag of money in their hand. "'You have done your work well,' he said. "'The cart will take you thirty miles on your road and then drop you. I wish you a safe journey. You had best hide your money in your boots unless you wish it to fall into the hands of highwaymen. The London road is infested with them.' With a word of farewell to Ronald and Malcolm, the two warders climbed into the cart. One of them mounted beside them and took the reins, and in another minute the cart drove away in the darkness. As soon as it had started, the man with the lantern removed his mask. "'Mr. Ratcliffe!' Ronald exclaimed in surprise. "'Yes, it is myself. There are half a dozen of us engaged in the matter. As soon as we heard of your arrest, we are determined to get you out. I was only afraid you would have been taken up to London before we could get all our plans arranged, for I knew they had sent up for instructions.' It was well that we were ready to act to-night, for orders were received this afternoon that you should be sent up under an escort to-morrow. You puzzled them rarely at your examination, and they could make nothing of you. 
our greatest fear was that you might betray yourselves in the prison when you fancied you were alone for we learned from the men who have just left us that you were placed in a special cell where all that you said could be overheard and your movements to some extent watched through a tiny hole in the wall communicating with the cell next to it it widens out on that side so that a man can get his ear or his eye to the hole which is high up on the wall and but a quarter of an inch across so that it could scarcely be observed unless by one who knew of its existence the warders said that they could hear plainly enough through this hole but could see very little however they do not seem to have gathered much that way we were on guard sir my friend malcolm thought it possible that there might be some such contrivance and now my young friend mr ratcliffe said you had best mount at once follow this road for half a mile and then take the broad road to the left you cannot mistake it it grows straight to penrith you have got the letter to general wade yes sir and the money we are indeed in every way greatly indebted to you say nothing about it mr ratcliffe said i am risking my life as well as my fortune in the cause of prince charles and this money is on his service i hear he is already on the march south repeat to him when you join him what i have already told you namely that i and other gentlemen will assuredly join him but that i am convinced there will be no general rising in his favour unless a french army arrive to his assistance the delay which has taken place has in my opinion entirely destroyed his chances unless he receives foreign assistance wade has ten thousand men at newcastle the duke of cumberland has gathered eight thousand in the midlands and there is a third army forming to cover london already many of the best regiments have returned from holland and each day adds to their number do all you can to dissuade him from advancing until french aid arrives but tell him also that if he comes with but half a dozen followers charles ratcliffe will join him and share his fate whatever it be with a hearty shake of the hand he leapt on his horse and followed by his servant galloped off in one direction while ronald and malcolm set out in the other this is a grand disguise ronald said we might ride straight into wade's camp at newcastle without being suspected i have no doubt we could malcolm agreed still it will be wiser to keep away from the neighbourhood of any english troops awkward questions might be asked and although the letter you have for the general may do very well to impress officers of militia or newly raised troops we may meet on the road and would certainly pass us as two orderlies conveying dispatches it would be just as well not to have to appear before the general himself our swords and belts would probably be noticed at once by any cavalry officers i know nothing about the english army and do not know how much the yeomanry swords and belts may differ from those of the line however it is certain the less observation we attract from the soldiers the better but as to civilians we can ride straight on through towns and villages with light hearts we may as well breathe our horses a bit malcolm now there is no occasion for haste and we can jog along at our own pace there is no probability of pursuit for when they find that we and the warders are missing and see the rope from our window they will be sure that we shall have started early and are far away by the time they find out we are gone accordingly they travelled quietly north boldly riding through small towns and villages putting up at little inns and chatting freely with the villagers who came in to talk over the news for the north was all excitement orders had been issued for all the militia to turn out but there was little response for although few had any desire to risk their lives in the cause of the stuarts fewer still had any intention of fighting for the hanoverians 
when they arrived within a few miles of newcastle they left the main road and struck across the country their object being to come down upon the road running north from carlisle for they thought it likely that parties of general wade's troops would be scattered far over the country north of newcastle at a farmhouse they succeeded in buying some civilian clothes giving out that they were deserters and as they were willing to pay well the farmer who had no good will towards the hanoverians had no difficulty in parting with two of his best suits they were now in a country perfectly well known to malcolm and travelling by byways across the hills they crossed the cheviots a few miles south of carter fell and then rode down the wild valleys to castletown and thence to the kenobi of the esk as they entered the little town they found the wildest excitement prevailing an officer with two orderlies had just ridden in to say that quarters were to be prepared for prince charles and a quantity of bullocks and meal got in readiness for the use of the army which would arrive late that evening ronald soon found the officer who had brought the order and recognized him as one of lord perth's aides-de-camp he did not know ronald in his present dress but greeted him heartily as soon as he discovered who he was how is it the troops are coming this way ronald asked they are marching through liddesdale from kelso we halted there for two days and orders were sent forward to wooler to prepare quarters this was to throw wade off the scent and induce him to march north from newcastle to oppose us on that road while well, as you see we have turned west and shall cross into cumberland and make a dash at carlisle a few hours later the prince arrived with his army and soon as he entered the quarters prepared for him ronald proceeded there and made his report i could wish it had been better captain wesley the prince said but the die is cast now and i cannot think that our friends in the north who proved so loyal to our cause in fifteen will hang back when we are among them when they see that charles ratcliffe and other gentlemen whom you have visited range themselves under our banner i believe the common people will join us also now give me a full account of your mission ronald gave the list of the gentry he had visited and described his arrest and imprisonment in manchester and the manner in which mr ratcliffe had contrived his escape you have done all that is possible sir the prince said and at an early opportunity i will show you i appreciate your services on the next day the eighth of november the corpse crossed the border on the ninth they were joined by another column which had marched from edinburgh by the western road and the united force marched to carlisle and sat down before it the walls of the city were old and in bad condition the garrison was ill prepared for a siege it consisted of a company of invalids in the castle under the command of colonel durand and a considerable body of cumberland militia the walls however old as they were could for some time have resisted the battery of four-pounder guns which formed the prince's sole artillery the mayor returned no answer to the prince's summons and orders were issued to begin to throw up trench works but scarcely had the operations begun when news arrived that marshal wade was marching from newcastle to relieve the city the siege was at once abandoned and the prince marched out with the army to brampton and took up a favourable position there to give battle the news proved incorrect and the duke of perth with several regiments was sent back to resume the siege on the thirteenth the duke began to raise a battery on the east side of the town but after a few shots had been fired from the walls the courage of the besieged failed them 
the white flag was hung out and the town and castle surrendered on the condition that the soldiers and militia might march away leaving their arms and horses behind and engaging not to serve again for a year on the seventeenth the prince made a triumphal entry into the place but was received with but little show of warmth on the part of the inhabitants a halt was made at carlisle and a council was held to determine upon the next step to be taken the news which had been received from scotland was very unfavourable lord strathallan who had been appointed by the prince as commander-in-chief and directed to raise as many troops as possible had collected between two and three thousand men at perth and lord lewis gordon had raised three battalions in aberdeenshire but on the other hand a considerable force had been collected at inverness for king george the towns of glasgow paisley and dumfries had turned out their militia for the house of hanover the officers of the crowd had re-entered edinburgh and two regiments of cavalry had been sent forward by marshal wade to their support while even scotland was thus wavering it seemed almost madness for the little army to advance into england the greater portion of the highlanders had from the first objected strongly to leave their country and upwards of a thousand had deserted and gone home on the march down from edinburgh they had started less than six thousand strong and after leaving a garrison of two hundred men in carlisle but four thousand five hundred were available for the advance south while wade with his ten thousand men would be in their rear and two english armies of nearly equal strength be waiting to receive them at the council the opinions of the leaders were almost unanimous against an advance but upon lord george murray saying that if prince charles decided upon advancing the army would follow him he determined upon pressing forward the army began its advance on the twentieth of november and halted a day at penrith upon the news that marshal wade was moving to attack them but the english general had not made any move and the scotch again pushed on through shap kendall and lancaster to preston during the march prince charles marched with his troops clad in highland garb and with his target thrown across his shoulder he seldom stopped for dinner but ate his food as he walked chatting gaily with the highlanders and by his cheerfulness and example kept up their spirits the strictest discipline was enforced and everything required by the troops was paid for at preston the prince on his entry was cheered by the mob and a few men enlisted from preston the army marched to wigan and thence to manchester the road was thronged with people who expressed the warmest wishes for the prince's success but when asked to enlist they all hung back saying they knew nothing about fighting still the feeling in favour of the prince's cause became stronger as he advanced south and at manchester he was received with acclamations of the inhabitants the ringing of the bells and an illumination of the city in the evening the people mounted white cockades and the next day about two hundred men enlisted and were enrolled under the name of the manchester regiment the command of which was given to mr francis townley a roman catholic belonging to an old lancashire family who with mr ratcliffe and a few other gentlemen had joined the army on the advance the leaders however of the prince's army were bitterly disappointed at the general apathy of the people lancashire had in fifteen been the stronghold of the jacobites and the mere accession of two or three hundred men was evident that nothing like a popular rising was to be looked for and they had but themselves to rely upon in the struggle against the whole strength of england 
Marshal Wade was in full march behind them. The Duke of Cumberland lay at Lichfield in their front, with a force of eight thousand veteran troops, while a third army, of which the Royal Guards were the nucleus, was being formed at Finchley. Large bodies of militia had been raised in several districts. Liverpool had declared against them. Chester was in the hands of the Earl of Cholmondeley. The bridges of the Mercy had been broken down. Difficulties and dangers multiplied on all sides. Prince Charles, ever sanguine, was confident that he should be joined by large numbers as he advanced south. But his officers were now thoroughly alarmed, and the leaders in a body remonstrated with Lord George Murray against any further advance. He advised them, however, to offer no further opposition to the prince's wishes until they came to Derby, promising that, unless by the time they were joined by the Jacobites in considerable numbers, he would himself, as general, propose and insist upon a retreat. Ronald utilized the short halt at Manchester to obtain new uniforms for himself and Malcolm, which he was glad to exchange for the farmer's garb, which had been the occasion of a good deal of joking and mirth among his fellow officers on the downward march. On the 1st of December, Prince Charles, at the head of one division, forded the Mercy near Stockport, where the water was waist-deep. The other division, with the baggage and artillery, crossed lower down at Cheadle, on a hastily constructed bridge, and the two columns joined that evening at Macclesfield. Here Lord George Murray succeeded in misleading the Duke of Cumberland as to his intentions by a dexterous manoeuvre. Advancing with a portion of his force dislodged, and drove before him the Duke of Kingston, and a small party of English horse posted at Congleton, and pursued them some distance along the road towards Newcastle under Tyne. The Duke of Cumberland, supposing that the Prince's army were on their march either to give him battle or to make their way into Wales, where the Jacobite party were extremely strong, pushed forward with his main body to stone. Lord George Murray, however, having gained his object, turned sharp off to the left and after a long march arrived at ashbourne where the prince with the other division of the army had marched direct the next afternoon they arrived at derby having thus altogether evaded the duke of cumberland and being nearly three days march nearer london than was his army the prince that night was in high spirits at the fact that he was now within a hundred and thirty miles of london and that neither Wade's nor Cumberland's forces interposed between him and the capital. The prince that night was in high spirits at the fact that he was now within a hundred and thirty miles of London, and that neither Wade's nor Cumberland's forces interposed between him and the capital. But his delight was by no means shared by his followers, and early next morning he was waited upon by Lord George Murray, and all the commanders of battalions and squadrons, and a council being held, they laid before the prince their earnest and unanimous opinion that an immediate retreat to Scotland was necessary. They had marched, they said, so far on the promise either of an English rising or a French descent upon England. Neither had yet occurred. Their five thousand fighting men were insufficient to give battle to even one of the three armies that surrounded them, scarcely adequate, indeed, to take possession of London, were there no army at Finchley to protect it. Even did they gain London, how could they hold it against the united armies of Wade and Cumberland? Defeat so far from home would mean destruction, and not a man would ever regain Scotland. 
In vain the prince replied to their arguments, in vain expostulated and even implored them to yield to his wishes. After several hours of stormy debate the council broke up without having arrived at any decision. The prince at one time thought of calling upon the soldiers to follow him without regard to their officers, for the Highlanders, reluctant as they had been to march into England, were now burning for a fight, and were longing for nothing so much as to meet one or other of the hostile armies opposed to them. The prince's private advisers, however, Sheridan and Secretary Murray, urged him to yield to the opinion of his officers, since they were sure that the clansmen would never fight well if they knew that their chiefs were unanimously opposed to their giving battle. Accordingly, the prince, heartbroken at the destruction of his hopes, agreed to yield to the wishes of his officers, and at a council in the evening gave his formal consent to a retreat. End of chapter 16